Welcome to Artful Aging with your host, Amy. Are you a senior or a caregiver of a senior looking for support and direction? Best-selling author, educator, and expert in senior living, Amy Friesen is here with the help you need while providing you with an important and valuable support network. So now, please welcome the host of Artful Aging, Amy Friesen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Amy Friesen, and this is Artful Aging with Amy. We are live from Bold Brave TV, and on today's show, we are going to talk about incapacity planning, what it is, how do you do it. Our guest today is Erin McNamara, who is the owner of McNamara Law Services, and she specializes in estate law and wills in Ontario. Erin is also a professor at the University of Ottawa, which is local to here, where she teaches wills and law succession. And she also has co-authored legal papers and provides estate planning seminars. Welcome, Erin. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, in my experience, uh, many seniors do not have proper documents in place, nor do they really know what they need. On top of that, many families get a not-so-good surprise when they need to step in and help their loved one, but the proper paperwork isn't in place. I've also had the situation come up more times than not that someone that has a loved one that has dementia and now that they figure out the power of attorney has not been activated and the dementia is getting worse and worse. And so the senior that has dementia is refusing to move. And I've had to tell many clients that they need to get a capacity assessment done. Just this morning, we've had this situation again. And actually, we've had it about three to four times this month alone. So our team at TNTOS finds it all the time throughout our advisors. It's it's not a terrific situation. In fact, it's a terrible situation. So, Erin, can we start today by looking at what does capacity mean and is it different for property versus personal care? Sure, yeah, and, and capacity is is one of those things that um, there is a legal definition, but it means different things to different people. So let's start with the property. So, so capacity to be able to manage one's own property means that the person needs to understand uh, the nature of their their property. So the nature of their assets, you know, uh, what a bank account is, um, the fact that they might have credit cards, or you know, it's different for everyone. But um, really, just in general terms, uh, an understanding of how their property works and what it is. So, you know, like values, all of that kind of thing. For personal care, it's really just the ability to take care of your person. So the ability to make, um, uh, you know, informed healthcare decisions, um, care of oneself. So personal hygiene, um, you know, uh, decisions that that are in your own best interest as far as medications, um, surgeries, just healthcare in general, living conditions, that kind of thing. So the property uh, side just deals with finances and things and money. And the personal care side deals with anything to do with the person. So it's a little bit different for each, but those are the general uh, guidelines around that. And just for a, you know, a tidbit into what I do, because obviously you, you know what I know about tea and toast, but just so I know also, I believe that housing, like retirement living, comes under finance. Is that where it comes under or personal? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of both, to be honest, because okay. uh, it touches on both. So 
let's assume that someone has documents in place. I know we're going to kind of get into those documents in, in a little bit, but let's assume that someone else has the authority to make decisions for someone else regarding their finances and their personal care. Um, when it comes time for them to go into long-term care, if they're, if that's in fact an option, then it's sort of both that intersect because the personal care side has to actually make the decision to say, you know what, um, this family member is needs to be in care. They need, you know, 24-hour care or they need certain, you know, memory care or whatever the case may be. And the property attorney, let's say, or the person managing the property, um, they have to pay the bills for that. They have to budget for that. So the two really do intersect. Sometimes it's the same person, which could be easier or more difficult depending on the situation. Um, but in any case, those two worlds kind of come together to make that happen. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Cause obviously we deal with it all the time. And so in my experience, we work with families all the time. Again, the person this morning as well, who refuse to accept that they have diminished capacity. So what's a family to do at that point? Unfortunately, I hear this more and more. I get calls sometimes from people just kind of desperate, not not knowing what to do because it really is a gray area. Um, you know, often when clients come to me and they're, they're, they're setting up these documents, everything's great. You know, everyone has, of course, capacity and, and it's, you know, these are just documents put in place as an emergency. But then when the day comes, it's really difficult to draw that line and say, okay, now, now they're active, you know, and, and as you may know this, uh, Amy, part of the um, unfortunate, you know, development of dementia or Alzheimer's or any of those related illnesses is a a denial of, of that state. So um, often families are really frustrated because the, the family member won't admit it or they just can't, they're in denial and, you know, they're angry about their, their diminished capacity, that kind of thing. So what I tell people is, here are your options. You can, you know, talk to the person and see if they'll allow you to help them. You know, depending on how you present it, they may allow you to kind of step in and, and start making decisions. Um, or failing that, if they're really, um, you know, digging their heels in and they're not allowing you to, to be involved at all, then your only option may be to get a capacity assessment. And if they refuse to do that, you may have to go through the court um, to through that channel to get an order. There's a, um, a capacity assessment board that may need to be involved to, to put that in place. Um, that's unfortunate, but sometimes it's the only option, especially if the person's health or welfare is at stake. You know, that may be the only option. Sometimes we deal with clients too that the POA is not active and the person's refusing and it their their home everything is just disheveled their proper nutrition and all that stuff sometimes the answer to that some of our families have gotten to is to get them to hospital sometimes because everything's out of whack including their meds their nutrition everything so just to even get them aligned again and then move them from there to to the retirement living or long-term care which is what some of our families have had to do um, yeah. Now, you just you talked about capacity assessment. Can you let us know what that is? Sure. So sometimes uh, an official assessment is needed for the person to accept help or, um, you know, for perhaps a guardianship application, you know, that, which, is an, which is a court process. So sometimes that, those assessments are needed, a formal assessment. And for those um, situations, there's two options. The first option is someone can go through their physician and their physician through the Mental Health Act may be able to provide that assessment uh, where they're basically declaring that the person has capacity to continue making 
making decisions for themselves, or they don't have capacity to do that. Um, and then there's options that come from that decision. The other uh, option for capacity assessment are, are actual capacity assessors. I always recommend this because they're specialists. They, they have expertise in these areas. Um, they have significant experience dealing with seniors and also um, they kind of know the nuances of, you know, time of day and medication and different things that may affect capacity. Um, so they're able to sort of uh, see that whole picture and determine um, whether there's capacity. And typically they're quite extensive meetings. Um, and what comes from it is a really thorough assessment, which is, uh, in my opinion, a the best option if if someone is going to challenge it. For example, the person saying I have capacity, yet there's a, a full report that states why maybe there is not, you know, uh, capacity found. So I, I feel like those reports are, are much better. Um, not to say that the physician ones aren't good, but they're really official. And as I said, they have expertise in those areas. So yeah, we we obviously deal with this a lot too, and it's you know um, what I'm actually finding more often than not is that the family doctor doesn't. Ha like have a lot of knowledge around dementia care and things like that. So uh, just happenstance, it's not all doctors, but there have been families. And so to get them to do it is sometimes hard because they don't know how, like they don't have experience in it or they don't recognize it or whatnot. So going to someone that's actually a capacity assessor to do that, I think is also a great option. Erin, um, can a person with a disability make a power of attorney? Um, the short answer is yes, depending on the disability. And um, an interesting thing to note is that for capacity, it's different with the power of attorney, or sorry, it's different with property than it is with personal care. So, um, for example, if someone is not able to manage their property, they may still be able to manage their personal care. So it, there's different levels of capacity. So depending on the disability, um, as long as they understand their property, as I mentioned earlier, and understand the nature of it, or if not, um, on the personal care side, if they're able to care for themselves and you know um, make those healthcare decisions that are, are good and, and in their best interest, then they may have capacity even though they have a disability. So it'll just depend on the scenario. Okay, like always, right? It's always dependent yeah. on each person individually. So, um, so now because we've touched on both types of power of attorney or POA for short, let's talk about the difference between two and let's start with property if we could. What does a POA for property like, what is it and what powers does it give to someone? Okay, that's a great question. So a power of attorney for property is a document that someone signs where they're giving authority to someone else to make decisions for them in the event that they're unable to make those decisions. So um, property deals with anything financial. So we're talking about bill payments, uh, banking, tax returns, canceling a gym membership, um, changing your cell phone plan, anything at all to do with money that's in the person's life is covered by that document. So, um, you know, it could be anything. Um, now, as far as the, um, the well, there's different types of, of those documents. There's different types of, of powers of attorney for property, but in general terms, it's the ability to make any decision for that person. The only thing Literally, the only thing the person cannot do is make a will for the person who has lost their, their capacity. So okay. once you make a will, if you then lose capacity, you can never change it. So no one else can change it on your behalf. So that's the property one. 
Interesting. And that falls in my let's plan uh, spiel, right, of always. But I've also been told whispers of the retirement industry that there's a difference between a bank POA and a general POA. Is that right? That's right. Yep. So bank POAs are literally done at the bank. So they they the branches have their own. And the purpose of that is so that someone else can come in, often a family member or an adult child uh, is very common, and they can come in and do their banking just at that bank, just for those accounts. So it's very specific and limited to that. Um, a general power of attorney or POA is for everything. So as I mentioned, gym membership, tax returns, banking, all of that is, ca is captured under that same umbrella and it's general. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not limited necessarily to just that one bank, for example. The two, you, they work together. Do you have to, I've also been told that the bank, you have to do a bank POA as well. Like, is that a thing or is that just some banks? Yeah, you, think? you know, you don't have to. So I, I sometimes hear that too. And it's it, it's a little concerning because there's no rule to do that definitely. And really, if the person's power of attorney for property, a general one, is drafted properly and witnessed properly and all of that, that should suffice. Like that, that will that's a much more robust document than the bank one, which as I said is very limited. So that general one takes the place of the bank one. Like you don't need the bank one with the general one. Um now, sometimes people may just want, you know, their son or daughter to, to have power at that bank and then they want someone else to have everything else. In that case, the bank one might be uh, a good idea because it's giving that one person that ability to do the banking, but nothing else. And that's where I said they can work together. Um, but as far as them being required, I, I they're not required. So, you know, if a bank's insisting on that, maybe they have an internal policy, but really the general one is is a much more, um, um, it's a much larger scope. So I would recommend having that one in place. Okay, perfect. Do, um, like, as we're in Ontario, if we have an Ontario power of attorney, is it valid in other provinces or, or other countries? You know what I'm going to answer that? <laughs> it depends. Um, <laughs> Well, the, and the reason I say that is because uh, it can be. So, so yeah, I mean, it there's there's different guidelines around it, but um, if if it complies with the rules of the country or the location where the person is, and they're trying to use the Ontario one, then technically speaking, it's valid. Um, but whether it's accepted at the counter by someone, that's another story. Unfortunately, it's not always the case. So. Fair enough. Okay, so we'll continue this chat in a minute. After the break, Aaron and I are going to be speaking about joint bank accounts. What are the pros and cons? You don't want to miss it. I'm your host, Amy, and this is Artful Aging with Amy here live on Bold Brave TV. We'll be right back. If you're a planner or trying to be one, Things You Should Know is a great place to start. Personal information, power of attorney info, and real estate is just a fraction of the information you can store in this fillable planner and record keeper. Download your free copy today at tntoast.ca forward slash medical dash planner to get started. Welcome back to Artful Aging with Amy, where we've been discussing powers of attorney, specifically POA for property. Now, Aaron and I have had a lot of people tell me about their loved ones. POA is not active, but they are joint account holders on their parents' account. And I want to talk about that in just a second. But something we were discussing on the break is where do folks find capacity assessors? Could you just let us know where they might look? 
Sure. Yeah, there are private assessors, but there's also a roster um, connected to the courts, the Ontario courts. So if you go on to, uh, if you if you Google um, Capacity Assessors Ontario, you should have that link as one of the first links. And basically, it's a roster um, connected through the court, and you can put in your area, like where you live, and then it'll show all the approved assessors. And there's, uh, there's standards that they have to meet. So it's a very consistent approach to capacity assessment. And I always recommend going that route. Um, and also, you know, um, as I said, there's there different areas. So you can find someone directly in your area that is convenient for your loved one, because often travel is an issue as well. So, um, and, and many of them make house calls too. So um, that's a good start to get to get a good name perfect perfect okay so let's bounce back to the bank for just a second so is it better to add someone as a joint account holder versus having a poa for property what are the pros and cons that we're looking at there so the pro is you know they can go in the next day and start doing banking and there's no issue typically like that you know it's it's the the, the bank account is accessible as if it, it is their own. I was going to say as if it was their own, but it is their own once they're joined. Um, so that's really convenience is, is probably the biggest one. Um, but there are a few pros that, in my opinion, really outweigh that option. Um, whenever clients ask me, should I just add my daughter to my account or my son or whatever? I always say a resounding no, <laughs> because um, what happens is even though it, it might seem like a good idea because it's convenient, um, once that account is joint with son or daughter or whomever, um, that's their asset now too, right? So they're sharing that asset, of course, because they have full access to it. So if they have a marriage breakdown, if someone sues them, um, if they have a tax you know, bill that they can't pay, all of those scenarios are um, situations where those assets are at risk now because they're their assets too, right? So let's say, for example, there's a um, a marriage breakdown and and the 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 spouse is trying to get half of that asset technically speaking it's it's their have to take so um it could be really problematic so i always tell people look it's not worth the risk don't put your finances your house every, anything at risk better to have a power of attorney because that way the person has all these sweeping powers anyway um the, the power of attorney document gives someone the authority to make decisions on your behalf as if they are you so they have full access to everything. So in my opinion, that's a better way to go. Yeah, it sounds extra messy the other way. And and just kind of, again, seeing it through my client's eyes, they don't need any more mess at the end of the day. Like it, there's a lot of things you're figuring out at this point. So um, uh, yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, what are um, a spouse's or family member's rights to manage property if there is no power of attorney in place? So this is uh, another unfortunate situation that happens. Sometimes it's too late to do a power of attorney um, where the person, you know, needs help, but they can't, they don't have capacity to sign one anymore. Um, in those scenarios, if they are joint with a spouse, like say a joint account or whatever, then the spouse has full access to continue operating that account because they're already on it. Um, but if there's a sole account, and the person has lost capacity, their spouse cannot do anything without a power of attorney document. So the only solution for them is to actually bring a guardianship application to court. And this can apply to even, um, you know, non-spouses like family members that need help, but they don't have a power of attorney. Um, you know, some someone suddenly has a terrible accident and they're in a coma, like unexpectedly, they're young, let's say. Um, 
there's no power of attorney, maybe guardianship is the only option. Same thing for uh, a disabled uh, relative, for example, someone that, um, you know, was maybe a new adult, uh, was a child. So the parents were able to manage their money all up until they're 18, but now they're having pushback from various agencies. They would have to get a guardianship application. So that is an option. Um, but if you can do a power of attorney, it's much better. It's more efficient. It's less costly. Um, you're not waiting for a court date. You're not going in front of a judge having to prove why you're, you're um, you know, uh, an appropriate choice because there's a lot of power that the court's giving you by, by awarding this guardianship. So it's a very uh, long, extensive application, as it should be. Um, but the easier way <laughs> is to be proactive and do the document yourself. And then how, you can control who it is as well. For sure. And generally, how long does that document take? Did I, I don't know if I missed it when you were saying it, but like, is it, is there an average amount of time? You mean for the, like for the guardianship? Yeah, for the guardianship, because you said it's a long process. Is yeah. there like an average amount of time that it does take? Because I think a lot of people feel like this type of paperwork is, is, is going to be easier or quicker. And so they put it off. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on the alternate, on the other end is this guardianship issue. And, you know, that might be a lot more involved, time consuming or whatnot. But I'm just curious, kind of in, in comparison, really. Well, the, the power of attorney uh, for property will take you um, like normally for my clients, I do it with wills. So I like I do the whole package and typically that whole process usually takes like anywhere from let's say four weeks to eight weeks, typically for a client from start to finish. Um, so, I mean, the, the document itself, it's, you know, within a couple of months you have it or less depending, you know, um, but for the guardianship, you've got to put together an application, apply, um, seek, uh, seek time in court to go in front of a judge, as I said, and have your application looked at. Um, I, it depends on, on really the court scheduling and the availability, but on average, what I'm hearing is, at least a year, even like like nine months to a year or something like that. Uh, and with COVID now, who knows, right? It's just like there's diminished op opportunities, although everything's on Zoom now. So, you know, it's a bit different, but um, it's a lot longer. And it's, you can do your own, like you can do your own, um, you know, uh, application, but often it is tricky and complex. So people do turn to legal help and that's typically like it can, it can get up there in legal expenses. So not ideal. It's not the best option. Well, and also that person that's trying to get the guardianship is also in crisis with their people, right? Like whatever's happening, they're involved too. So it's not going to be easy. But uh, just before we leave for the break, can you, I don't know if you can sum this up quickly or not, but you had mentioned continuing versus springing POA. Can you give us like a, just a quick, quick sure. definition? Yep. So continuing POA means that you can use it throughout different uh, times. So you might use it for convenience at first where you have capacity, but you're asking the person to go do your banking for you. And then you put it back in storage and you do it again. And then maybe you lose capacity down the road. That same POA can continue on. So you can use that same document. And then the springing one is really just if you lose capacity, then it becomes valid. So um, and okay. the continuing one is valid right away typically. So. That's very helpful. Yeah, I didn't even know those terms. So that's amazing. Thanks for that. So we're going to continue this right after the break. I'm finding today's discussion very interesting. Uh, I hope that you are getting something as well from it. Coming up on Artful Aging with Aaron, uh, with Amy and Aaron, we're going to continue this conversation and have a look at power of attorneys for personal care. Uh, we'll see you in a minute.
Hello again. Welcome back. In today's show, we've been talking about powers of attorney and what they are and how do they work. So let's go and look at the power of attorney POA for personal care. Erin, what is a POA for personal care? What powers does it give someone? It is a document that gives someone the authority to make decisions about your person. So individual medical decisions, consent to treatment, um, anything to do with your, your medical or personal needs is covered by that document. Yeah. Okay. How does it generally, like, how does it work practically? And when is it valid or active? Because there's, a, again, with what we do for work as well, is there's a lot of gray zone. People don't understand um, powers of attorney and when to, to put it into place and stuff. So when is it actually valid and active? So unlike the pro the property one where, as I mentioned before the break, you can you don't have to lose capacity for it to be active. A continuing one typically starts right away. And so if it's convenient, you can give it to someone and go, you know, sign something at the accountant's office and bring it back and you're fine if, you know, if you, if you can't get out. The personal care one is completely different in that it's actually not active unless you lose capacity to care for yourself. So there's been an assessment or the doctor has stepped in or the person has agreed um, to let someone take over and they need someone to help make those decisions. So it's not really active unless it's needed. And often, you know, there, there are cases, obviously, many people that don't ever need them. So in those cases, it just never becomes active. That's a tough one, too, especially, again, if you're dealing with someone that has cognitive issues, right? It's, you know, you don't want to step on toes, but, you know, so-and-so is not keeping up with their personal appearance or something like that. So again, capacity assessment, but it's a tough call when to get that. That's what a lot of our clients deal with. Is a power of attorney for personal care also valid in other provinces and countries? Yeah, the same thing would apply, um, you know, if it's valid according to their standards. And the same thing is really for a will as well, like all these related documents, if they're acceptable um, according to the standards of where that person is, then that's that's fine. It will be accepted. But again, there's usually pushback because they don't they're not familiar with the forms, etc. When I know people are going to be spending significant amount of time uh, outside of Ontario, I always recommend look next time you're there, like if you're a snowbird or whatever, just get a POA done there by a lawyer there because they know their forms. They, there's different formats, and it's just going to be much easier if they're needed with very little um, hassle or, or sort of barriers to getting those those um, those people in place to make those decisions. Okay, fair enough. Let's um, let's take a look at living wills, Erin. Um, can you explain to our viewers what a living will is? Is it binding? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think there's a lot of myths around a living will and what it is really. It's just another word for advanced or another two two words for advanced directives. So basically a living will is an expression of someone's wishes in the event that they are being cared for under this power of attorney for personal care and they develop some sort of condition where there's really no recovery, um, there's maybe diminishing health and really they've become reliant on extraordinary measures, how do they want that person to proceed? to make their decisions for them. So it could be, you know, if I'm in that state, I want to be removed from life support and allowed to, you know, 
pass away if that's the result with no pain, et cetera. You know, they can sort of add things to it. Or you might say, look, I want to be kept alive at all costs. I, you know, I maybe there's some new thing happening in science. I don't want to be removed from life support. So people have different views on it. But um, the bottom line is it's not binding because you can't really compel someone to take that step ahead of time for you because we really don't know what the situation is going to be. So it's really just your wishes. And what I tell clients is, although it doesn't have legal teeth, it can't be enforced necessarily. Um, if you know what you want, if you know that you want to be removed from, you know, extraordinary measures, for example, in my mind, it's it's a really kind thing to do because your loved one isn't necessarily making that decision on their own. They're, it's it's more, it's not really my decision. I'm just honoring mom's wishes kind of thing. So um, in that sense, I think it has a really uh, important role if someone knows what they want. It's a good idea to include it. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree as well. It's really tough on family to to make those decisions well in crisis as well, because consider all of your POA folks, all, you know, all of your family, they're going to be right there with you, right? So something that um, comes up from time to time with our clients at TN Toast is that um, they have separate POAs for property and personal care. And so what if the attorney for property refuses to pay for care? Yeah, these conflicts do arise sometimes when it's different people, of course. Um, and so really right in the Substitute Decisions Act, it does state that if there's a conflict, the um, well, it, it can go to mediation. If there's really a conflict and they can't move forward, that's right in the legislation that mediation will, will be um, will proceed and then the, the conflict will be resolved. Um, but really the guideline around the, the power of attorney for properties, so that the person acting under that document, their guideline is to always consider the person's uh, personal care when they're making those financial decisions. So they're supposed to look at the whole picture and say, is this the best um, facility for, you know, my, my, you know, family member? because it's 10 hours north and no one can go see this person. So like those are the kinds of things that they're supposed to consider when making those decisions on, you know, uh, care. Basically, they're supposed to consider the, the personal care side of things too. Yeah, for sure. Supposed to consider as well, right? Like it's, it's there's so many family conflicts and things like that. But Erin, um, we've been ch chatting about a lot of heavy things, but super necessary. I would like to wrap up with you with, you know, can you tell me what your number one thing for anyone watching is, right? Like, what's your number one thing to do? Honestly, just be prepared, you know, get your affairs. I don't want to say get your affairs in order because that's always a sort of daunting phrase. But, you know, make sure you're prepared. You know, uh, it's really for your loved ones to be able to navigate through this. Um, you know, have a will in place, of course, but that's another topic. But, you know, for, for personal care and, and power of attorney for property, it's super important to have those. It's proactive. You're picking the person that you want to make decisions for you. Um, you know, it's not left up or guardianship applications or anything. So the best thing you can do is get those documents in place and then you have peace of mind and hopefully you never need them. But if you do need them, they're there and you don't need to, uh, your family doesn't need to scramble. And it's a, there's enough stress going on in those situations. This will sort of minimize that in my opinion. For sure, that's, that's my opinion too, right? Plan, <laughs> for sure. Well, Erin, it's been terrific having you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. For more information on Erin, 
uh, you can head over to artfulagingwithamy.com and her bio is there and a link to the website. Again, thanks, Erin. Thanks very much for taking some time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. After the break, I'm going to sum up my top tips for today. Grab a coffee or a tea. Join me back in two minutes. You've been watching Artful Aging with Amy here live on Bold Brave TV. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me today. There was a lot of information covered today. Conversations with loved ones over topics like this are often difficult or non-existent in many families. I can definitely um, tell you that a lot of our uh, clients, again, at Tientos have a lot of these issues. And so I was just telling Erin before she left us that I was going to forward this to a lot of our clients because it's very, very pertinent information. Uh, many families are really caught off guard when the time comes that they need these documents and their love uh, for their loved one. It often sneaks up and it's often in crisis where an adult child learns that not all the documents are in place and sometimes it's too late to activate them as you heard with Aaron. And so instead of you know surprising your loved one uh, at the end of the day, again, plan, plan, plan. If you are a loved one or in a situation where the documents are not up to date, or not done, reach out to Erin, or if you're not in Ontario, find someone in your local area, have a conversation, be informed of what your choices are. Don't just assume things will fall together or you'll wait it out. A lot of people tend to wait for crisis, but crisis is often too late. So my top tips for today. Number one, get a POA for both property and personal care in place. Don't leave it to the last minute. You never know what's gonna happen. And also um, remember that Aaron said too, advanced directives or a living will are very important as well. And having your will in place. I know we didn't cover those too much today, but all of these pieces of paperwork need to be in place so that someone can help make your decisions for you uh, as the best that they can. And again, it kind of takes, it takes the pressure off the family if you can get these in place. As Aaron said earlier, organize your financial life plan it out so someone can step in as easy as possible. Remember, the person you want to handle your affairs is most likely in the crisis with you. It's going to be your adult child or your spouse or a close family member. You don't just give your power of attorney to some random person. And so consider that they're going to be in crisis with you and they're still going to be living and operating their own life. So give them a break a little bit. Number three, make your wishes known for both POA and property of care. Many adult children are worried about making the wrong decision for their loved one. So help take the load off your family by telling your adult children or your POAs what you would like and make their life easier. I'm going to say mother and father, wink, wink. So there you have it. On next week's show, we're going to be speaking about dementia care strategies over the holidays, what to look for in the holiday season, if your loved one is on their senior living journey with dementia. I would like, uh, sorry, I would love if you could take a minute to like us on the platform that you're listening or watching us on, give us a thumbs up, give us some comments, spread the love of Artful Aging with Amy so that other families can find this information to make their life a little bit easier because there's a lot of families struggling and feeling isolated. Thank you so much for joining me today on Artful Aging with Amy. Again, we're live on Bold Brave TV every Wednesday. From me to all of you, I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday. 
You've been listening to Artful Aging with host Amy. Many folks just like you feel they're alone in their journey in helping a loved one or caregiver. So tune in each week and let Amy show you that help is around the corner and is just one conversation away here on Artful Aging.